Please stand to your feet this morning. I believe that today is a good day to renew my mind, encourage my soul, align with truth, and walk in faith. Amen. Do you believe it? There's never been a better day for all four of those things to happen in your life. Today is the day. Amen. Amen. We're in a series called Because You Asked. And earlier in the year, January to be exact, we sent out forms and said, any question you have about anything, we'll, we'll address it and talk about what the Bible has to say about it. And so you sent back your responses and we've, over the last, I don't know, is this week five? It's been a long series. I think this is part five of the series. Today will be the last day because uh, we have to move on into the next next thing we're already I've already pushed it and extended it too long but it's been good have you been here for it and you've enjoyed the questions I know so good every series I do I get a text from my mom saying this is the best series you've ever done <laughs> and this was no exception she loves the series I do too it's kind of fun because we just get to talk about different topics every four or five minutes or ten minutes and it's just been super, super fun. Unfortunately, there have been more questions than I'm going to have time to answer. Um, there were just so many good questions. And even today, I debated, you know, I've averaged, what, Dana, five questions, six questions a sermon. A couple weeks ago, I answered two questions in the sermon. Today, I have nine questions in the sermon. So I may not even finish my notes today, and we're just going to call it done, okay? Can we all agree? We're just going to get what we get and not throw a fit. That's what we tell our kids when we're feeding them dinner and they don't like it. You get what you get, you don't throw a fit. So we're just going to feast on the Word today, let Holy Spirit speak to us. I may jump around in the questions projection, be prepared for that. Um, I may not go in order. Uh, we're just going to see what Holy Spirit is doing. We're going to walk by faith today, renew our minds. Father, we come before you God, I thank you for your word that is alive and it is active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. I ask, God, that today it would just cut away the flesh of our heart. God, it would just encourage us, inspire us. It would move us to action. It would draw us closer to you. God, any presuppositions, philosophies, or things that we hold tightly in our hand, we lay them on the table before you. Help us. Help us, Lord, just sift through our thoughts, our ideologies, our perceptions of you. In all things, God, we know that you're a good God. So today in the sermon, I believe there's going to be healing that's going to be dropped in this auditorium. In the name of Jesus, we just speak healing from cancer in this room. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, God, we just receive all forms and manifestations of healing as we receive your word today. Let it be life to our bones. In Jesus' name. All right, before you sit down, go ahead, fist bump somebody else, high five somebody else, and then you're going to be seating, sitting for a minute. If you're watching online, please let me know where you're watching from. I see several of my friends watching today. So the only rules that we have during this series, by the way, is if I could just refresh your memory. Our answers are based on God's word, right? Not based on 
what we want to hear or pastor's opinion. We're, we're just talking about the word. And so if you asked a question and I found the answer in the word, I'm going to give you the answer from the word. If the Bible doesn't specifically address the topic, and we've got a few of those questions today, then we're going to move to the principles. So we're going to look at a variety of scriptures, see what the principles are in scripture, and then apply it to the question that you asked. If we don't see scriptures, we don't see principles, I may weigh in with my opinion. But every week, and I'll say it again, I've let you know that my opinion is worthless. And so is yours. All right? We all have opinions, and that's fine. It's fun to have opinions about all kinds of things. But if it's in the Word, I forfeit the right to have an opinion. If there are principles, my opinion needs to lean into the principles. And if the Bible doesn't address it at all, it's open season for whatever opinion you want to have on it. Okay? So you can think and do and say whatever you think. Are you guys ready to get, get going today? All right, question number one. Question number one. This is a fun one for all the kids in the room. Do you believe in spanking? Do you believe in spanking? Oh, I believe spanking is real. Trust me, I was a complicated kid. I know that spanking is real. Spanking is real. Do I believe in spanking? Yes, it is real. <sighs> There's an old saying, you probably heard it, spare the rod. Wait, let me say it. Let me say it like I've seen it growing up in Texas. <laughs> spare the rod. Spare the rod, spoil the child. Right? Except the Bible doesn't say spare the rod, spoil the child. It says spare the rod and you hate the child. Even worse. That's true. So we're going to pick up our discussion on Proverbs 13, 24, just to see what Scripture says. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Now, let's just all understand here this morning that spare the rod does not translate in the Greek or the Hebrew or Aramaic into spank your child. Now, I know a lot of good old boys in Texas who thought spare the rod meant spank the child. But that's not a... That's not a translation that we're going to adopt today. Uh, in fact, we know from studying scripture that withholding the rod uh, means a lot of different things. What was the rod used for? In scripture, we find it was used for and useful for correcting, for defending, for protecting, guiding, and yes, even punishment. The rod was an instrument that had many functions, but all the functions were meant to build up not tear down. Spare the rod does not mean if you don't spank, you're going to spoil that kid. Spare the rod means if you don't correct, protect, guide, 
sometimes punished, there's going to be a consequence, okay? Uh, we don't often think of this, but this scripture lets us know that our attitude towards discipline is the key indicator on how much you love your child. The discipline you give your child indicates how much you love your child. I know there is a movement today called gentle parenting, and I'm not here to speak against gentle parenting because I'm not an expert and I don't know enough about it. I think that gentle parenting can, in fact, be discipline. But what we need to gather in my response to your question, do I believe in spanking, there's a bigger principle. Yeah, I, I believe in spanking, but the bigger principle is I believe in discipline. I want to be sensitive today to anyone in the room that's ever experienced abuse. I know people that were physically abused and they refused to spank their child because the trauma they endured is very real and has lasting impact on their emotions and on their life. So I want to respect that and I, I honor your courage to find new methods to discipline, discipline your kids and to find healthy ways to guide your children to correct your children, and to connect with your children. But I will say, I do believe that spanking, when not done in anger, can be a healthy form of discipline. I believe that spanking can be a healthy form of discipline. Now, please note, that is my opinion. And we've already established that Trey's opinion is... Thank you. Thank you of all the things you memorized that I say. You sure got that one down. Uh, but the truth is, if I'm being fully transparent, there are many times I'll look at a kid and I think, that kid just needs a whooping. See, I know you think it too. I think, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But to be honest, I think that time out is more harmful than spanking. And that was a phase we went through too when we were like, oh, I don't, your kid hits, so you hit your kid to tell your kid not to hit a kid. So we're not going to do that. We're going to put them in time out. And I'm thinking, oh, let's isolate the kid. Let's remove them from connection. That seems way more harmful than a pat done in love or a spanking done in love. Because we do know for sure that addiction flourishes in disconnection. So I wonder how many of our children from sitting in the corner have had seeds of addiction being planted in their life because they didn't actually learn how to connect in difficult situations. They learned to withdraw. So you didn't ask me about timeout, but I'm more anti-timeout than I am anti-spanking. Now, if you spank in anger, that's a totally different story, and that's where we lean into what I believe to be abuse. But here's where I'm going to land on this question. The Bible does not address spanking, but it does address discipline. If you don't discipline your child, you hate them. That's what the Bible says. The Bible said it, not me. Um, if you discipline, if your discipline creates fear, it isn't modeled after the discipline that God gives to you. When God disciplines you, he never creates fear inside of your heart. Discipline is just to bring 
correction. I looked at the etymology of this word, the, um, the birthing of this word, discipline. And discipline is a verb, generally, but it's linked to a noun. And the noun is disciple. Isn't that cool? To think about disciplining your kids is not about punishing them. It's about creating little disciples. How wonderful is that? How whole is that and healthy is that? I mean, I can't imagine that Jesus, when sitting with the 12, was like, all right, Peter, come on, bend over. Bend over, Peter. He's creating disciples, and around the campfire, he's just giving out lashes? I don't think so. I'm not anti-spanking, but I think that discipline, when viewed through the lens of creating disciples, makes it a whole new ballgame. We look at discipline as something that's laborious and work and so heavy and, oh, this hurts me more than it hurts you. It shouldn't hurt you. Discipline shouldn't hurt any of you. Discipline should be life to your relationship, life to your, your family, life to your home. Discipline should fuel what's going on, what God is doing in your home. When done right, discipline is life to your home. Now, I'll go ahead and leave you with one final trayism on the subject of discipline. If your discipline isn't building self-discipline in your child, then what you're doing isn't discipline. If you're just creating fear from consequences so that your, cho- your Johnny or your Julie doesn't do X, Y, and Z again because they're afraid of the consequences, they're not learning self-discipline. They're not learning to self-regulate. And that's the goal of discipline. If your discipline isn't creating self-discipline in your child, what you're doing is not really discipline. Can we move on? All right, next question. What are the members of the body? Are they the spiritual gifts? What are the members of the body? Um, Let's just jump right into scripture. The members of the body are the people of the church, right? The members of the church are the members of the body. Corinthians 12 verses 20 through, I'm sorry, 12 through 20 says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body... Though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink from one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell? Where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So when we talk about members of the body, we're talking about individuals in the church who play a critical role. You have a role in the body of Christ. Jesus is the head, we are the body. Some of you are hands, some of you are ears, some of you are feet, some of you are butts. It's true. It takes us all, it takes us all. Together we are one 
body. Now, I really like this question, to be quite honest with you, because there has been a removal of language in the church over the last, I don't know, 30 years, 25 to 30 years, and uh, I'm kind of interested in the notion that we should recover language. There should be a recovery effort in language. Asking this question, what are members of the body, reminds me of a time here recently that a member of our church, came, I saw him outside of the church, and and he asked me, he said, I've been hearing a couple of words at church that I don't know. What are they? And he's fairly new to Christ. And I was like, yeah, tell me, what are the words that you don't know? And he was like, what is evangelism? And I was like, oh, okay. And he said, and, and what is discipleship? What does that mean? And so we sit, sat and had a conversation and we talked about these old words and what they meant for today. I think the church has kind of, made the gospel so palatable, so digestible for the masses that we've lost some of the rich history and traditions and, and language of the church. I mean, evangelism, you know, we used to call it churchese. You know, when you get on platform, don't speak churchese. We want to make sure and make it palatable for everyone. Make, just say plain English. But in doing so, we've lost some of the richness. Baptism, for example. We say the word baptism, and we've just come to believe that hey, baptism is just an identification with Jesus when he died on the cross, went in the grave, and he rose again. And we just make baptism seem just so shallow. I mean, honestly, that's how I describe it to people. I'm trying to recover the language because baptism is more than that. There's a washing of our spirit when we get baptized. The Bible tells us that we are baptized into the body of Christ through baptism. This is why baptism is so critical and so important. It's, it's not just an outward expression for all the world to see that you're finally a Christian. No, it is like you've made the decision to be a part of the body of Christ, and there is a mystery about that. And how do I, how do I become that knuckle or that fingernail or whatever it is, the part that I play in the body of Christ? The Bible says it happens through baptism. I am baptized into, there's one baptism by one Lord, and I'm baptized, baptized into the body with, that's one body by one spirit. So there's this massive unity that takes place in baptism, but we need to recover the language of the church. Do, do you know what I mean? I think this question is so important. Tithing, for example. Someone asked me last week, so tithing, what is tithing? Is tithing like, does it really have to be 10%? And I'm like, well, tithe translates literally to tenth. So yes, Malachi 3 says that we're robbing God if we're not tithing. But it's also a reflection of your faith. If you don't have the faith to give 10%, where is your faith at? Do you have faith for 1% right now? I mean, yeah, you're still robbing God 9%, but let's just start with your faith. Because there's, there's just a grace that covers us when we step out in faith. And so I told the person, I said, hey, if your faith level right now is just 2%, every time you get paid, give 2%, do it, man. All of heaven's going to rejoice because that's your step of faith. And then pray for more faith. And as you step out with that 2%, you're going to find that you're going to then have the faith for 3%. And then you're going to have the faith for 4% and 5%. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's just a grace. But, but tithing is so much richer than bring your money to the barrels. 
yeah, we need your money to pay the electricity and the rent, which is $24,000 every single month. It's so weird. Every first of the month, they ask for more. 24000 a month that we pay for rent here. So yeah, tithing quite literally, biblically, is to take care of the needs of the, the church. But it's so much richer than that. And, and so I'm kind of on a mission to recover language. I might even do a series on recovery, just about the language of the church. She likes to help preach sometimes. I, I might even do a, a series on recovery, but whoever asked that question about what are the members of the body, I love you. Because you remind me to take this rich language and this rich history that we hold and, yes, make it palatable and explain evangelism, explain stewardship, explain members of the body, fruits of the Spirit, gifts of the Spirit. Explain it in a way that's digestible, but let's hold on to the rich history and the meaning, and let's not just do a shallow talk on it. So whoever asked that question, high-five you today. All right, um, can we get to the next question? Question number three. I might just make it through all the questions today. Question number three. In Revelation chapter 7, it mentions 144,000 people being sealed. Does that mean that those people go to heaven and everyone else stays and has heaven on earth? Do they become angels? All right, that's a good question. Uh, I wonder if the person that asked that question is also the person that asked a question about Revelation last week. Uh, someone is digging into Revelation. I think that's wonderful. That's one of my favorite books of the Bible. Uh, I do want to address that question. I'll start with the last question you asked. Do they become angels? Uh, look at your neighbor and say, no way, Jose. No human ever becomes an angel. It's not, it's not going to happen. Angels are a totally different order of creation. Uh, we learned last week in Hebrews 2.16 that Jesus didn't die for angels. He died for humans. So if you became an angel, if you moved from a human to an angel, you would forfeit the right of the blood of Jesus. So no human ever becomes an angel. So no way, Jose, that's not going to happen. But the 144,000 in Revelation 7 being sealed, um, you can find that in Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. I'll go ahead and read that for you so that you know and can verify I'm using the word of God today. After these things, I saw four angels, John did, John saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. All right, that verse again. Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. John literally heard this number out loud. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. All right, so there will be, in the end of days, 144,000 people sealed. They're going to be sealed as servants of our God. Now, sealed can be translated as marked. 
they are going to have a mark. Um, and that mark basically could be compared to the mark of the beast. Sorry, not compared, contrasted to the mark of the beast. We know that in the end days, the beast will have his own mark. The Bible references that as a 666 on the hand and the forehead or the forehead. And when the beast puts his mark on people, it's to keep them safe from the wrath of the beast. Those that don't have the mark of the beast will be faced with the wrath from the beast. Does that make sense? So the mark of the beast keeps those people safe from the wrath of the beast. The problem is it then makes them open to the wrath of God. The 144,000, they are sealed. They are marked by God. That sealing, that mark, prevents them from experiencing the wrath of the one who marked them. But it opens them up to experience the wrath of the beast. Do you see how these correlate? So the 144,000, when they are sealed, it's not a protective restraint that the beast can't touch them. They certainly will find themselves being martyred and facing all kinds of issues. But what they won't face is the wrath of God. The wrath of God that is currently being held up at a river by four angels. And it's not allowed to blow until these people are first sealed. When they receive the sealing, the wrath of God is going to blow, and it will not touch the 144,000. Those 144,000 people will be a witness to God. They will uh, be the missionaries of the end time days. Uh, by the way, if you were a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you currently are sealed. <laughs> it's kind of cool to think of the 144,000 who are going to have this sealant. They're going to be like safe from the wrath of God, and they're going to be workers, but, but you currently have a ceiling. You currently are sealed. Ephesians chapter 4, 29 through 32 says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good and necessary edification for necessary edification. Wow, can I just start over again? I'm not sure if that's poor English or I was speaking in tongues there. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 through 32. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So you are, as a believer, you are currently sealed until the day of redemption. Do you know, do you know what that means? Does that, does that mean you're not going to experience hardship? No. Does that mean you're not going to experience the wrath of man? No. That means God is your owner. You are not going to experience the wrath of God. You are not going to experience the judgment of God. All things that God gives toward you and all things that God gives to you are for you 
not against you. That's exactly what that that means. And you are sealed until the day of redemption. Woo! Not sealed until the day you make a big mistake. Oh, man, I'm... Not sealed until the day you you just forget how good God is. Not not sealed uh, until the day you you do that thing that you know God doesn't want you to do. You are sealed from the moment you get sealed. That thing doesn't wash off. There is no sin, no mistake, no thing that you can step into that is more powerful than the blood of Jesus. Mm. And that needs to set some of us free today who have just been trying to earn that salvation. You, Maybe you've been working so hard trying to get that salvation. You just don't have to do it. It has been won. You were saved by grace through faith. Not of your works, works lest anyone should. I don't know what is wrong with my language today. Father, bless me. I need sleep. That's right, I do. That's right. You're saved by grace through faith, not of your works, lest any man should boast. And some of you are hard workers. Like, if you could earn your way to heaven, you're halfway there. But I'm glad I just, I can take naps from time to time, and I don't have to work that hard because Jesus already paid the price. But you know what my good works flow out of? Not me earning my way to heaven, but because I've been already sent to heaven. I'm already seated in heavenly places. Because I'm already there, my good works now flow out of who God has called me to be. I have good works because he set me free, not so that he will set me free. Mm. All right, 144,000. I don't know how I got there from there, but God will use it. You're already sealed. Next question. Now, the next two questions deal about life after death. Let's check in on the time. Oh, lots of time. Next two questions are about life after death. Here's question number four. In heaven, do you remember being married? After death, do you remember what you did on earth? I really wish I knew who asked this question. I want to know if somebody is like, does God just take the trauma away? Like, does it just... Is it all brand new or, or is it someone like, oh, I just, I'm so in love, like my wife would say this, I'm just so in love with my wonderful spouse that I just don't want, when I get to heaven, it's going to be so great, but I don't want to forget my marriage. Like, I don't know who asked the question or from what motivation, but I'm going to give you a response that is biblical, okay? In heaven, do you remember being married? The answer is yes, without a doubt. Uh, For some of you, on marriage number five or six, you're going to have a lot of memories. (laughs) It's true. It's true. How awkward is that going to be if they're all saved as well? Oh, sorry, I'm going to climb the mountain with Sheila today. (sighs) You know I'm just teasing. You know I'm just teasing, right? Yes, you're going to know that you were married. Um, You will remember what you did on earth as well. Um, We know this from the story that Jesus told about Lazarus and the rich man. And the rich man was in Hades. Uh, Lazarus was 
in Abraham's bosom. And there was a great chasm between the two, and they were talking. I don't believe that we'll be able to talk to people in hell. Uh, that all changed post-resurrection. Uh, there is now a, a place in heaven that does not see into hell. Uh, but in that story, we know that the rich man who was in Hades, a.k.a. hell, knew that he had five brothers at home, so he knew family relationships. He also knew um, that his brothers were not saved, uh, which isn't a good word post-cross, but you get my point. He knew that they would end up in Hades, and he wanted someone to go and warn them so that they would change their ways and not end up in Hades. So uh, we see from that example that in the afterlife, in the next life, or in the second part of your life, you will remember everything in the first part of your life. Uh, a similar question that we'll go ahead and get to, question number five. If you passed away before a loved one, will you know if the other person passed away? Will you know if they made it to heaven or hell? Ooh, that, isn't that such a good question? Have you ever sat and pondered that? Wow, that's really deep. That's deeper than it sounds on the level, on the surface level. Um, my final answer to this is yes, you will know. You will know if your loved one is still alive. Um, I, it is undetermined if you will know what your family member is currently doing, if they're following God or not. I'm not sure that you'll know that. Um, scripture isn't really clear on the current stuff. We, we know that the rich man who saw his five brothers knew at least of their past, where they were up until that point, but he didn't, it doesn't say that he knew where their current state was. Um, but I believe in, where am I at? I believe, yes, you are going to know if your loved ones have passed away or not. First of all, if they receive Christ, you're going to know because you'll be part of the celebration when that happens. Every time someone receives Jesus on earth, all of heaven rejoices. So if one of your loved ones, if you die and you go to heaven and one of your loved ones gets saved, you're going to know when they get saved and you're going to be part of that celebration. In fact, some of you who got saved, your grandparents or your parents or whoever prayed you in and had already gone to glory, they already know that you're saved. They were part of your celebration when that happened. Um, will you know if they made it to heaven or hell? Now that's the clencher question. If you are in heaven and your loved one dies, they didn't ever come to faith in Jesus and they go to hell, will you know that they went to hell? You ready for this answer? Whew. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if you'll know, but here's what I do know. You will know where they spend eternity. So there is a t there's a time lapse between when someone dies to then the great white throne judgment at the end of all of humanity. At the end of all of humanity, everyone who has ever lived that did not come to faith in Jesus will have to stand before the great white throne. All, great and small, everyone will be resurrected and stand and be judged, and we're all going to be part of that. We get to watch that. We won't be judged at the great white throne judgment. That's good news. So you won't stand before the great white throne and wonder if you're going to make it into heaven or if you're making it into hell. Everyone who has said yes to Jesus, you're covered by the blood, that actually is your judgment day. You are judged righteous on the day you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. 
your eternity is solidified and set on that day. That is your great white throne judgment day when you receive Jesus Christ. Now, when you die and go to heaven, there's another judgment called the Bema Seat. The Bema Seat, though, is not to determine if you're worthy enough to be in heaven. The Bema Seat is for your rewards. So all of the good works that you did, how generous you were, how faithful you were, how how you obeyed the Lord, all of those things will be weighed and measured at the Bema Seat. The things that don't honor God will be burned up to smoke. The things that will remain will be the things that you did to honor God, whether that's in loving your kids well, loving your husband well, your spouse well, helping strangers, helping the poor, helping the homeless. You get the point. All the things that honor God becomes the things that God judges to determine how your rewards how many rewards you get in heaven, all right? So you're judged for eternity when you say yes to Jesus. You're judged for rewards when you get to heaven at the Bema Seat. Is that clear? Then at the end of all time, there's a great white throne judgment that we are spectators of, not participants. So we get to watch Hitler stand before, unless Hitler came to know Jesus in his final dying breath. Who knows? If he did, that was his judgment day. He's in glory. I don't know. I have no idea. But if not, you and I will be witnesses as he stands before the throne and the book of life is opened and all of his works are read aloud and everyone looks on and there is a final determination on if he is to depart or if he is to remain and he's in the book of life. All right. Now, that brings a deeper theological question of will there be people that get eternal life that never came to know Jesus Christ? I don't have time to talk about that, but that's really fun. Uh, The short answer, in my opinion, is yes, Uh, but it's based on geography, where people spend eternity and where they live and who's invited into the city, uh, the city of God, and who's on the outskirts. But that's a whole other very deep, deep question. And why, why, why chance it? You can have a guaranteed entry to the city of God now by saying yes to Jesus Christ and not have to be judged by your works or your performance or what you did at the great white throne. So to close up this question, will you know if your loved ones go to hell? You'll know if your loved ones are sent away from God for eternity because you will witness their judgment. That person that God has sent you to, to witness to, to pray, to be in their life for the last 10, 20, 40, 50 years. And you've not stewarded that moment to lean in and to witness and share the gospel and to love them well. You will stand and watch as they stand before the great white throne. If that doesn't give you chills and scare the mess out of you, I don't know what will. This is why we must reach people for Jesus. All right. That's a good answer. Is that resolved? All right. Dang it. What questions do I want to answer? You want me to answer a really fun question or a really spiritual one? 
All right. Question number six. Why do we celebrate pagan holidays like Christmas and Easter when they aren't biblical? Deuteronomy 12.4, Colossians 2.8, Romans 12.1-3, are they applicable? The pagan holidays don't even match up date-wise. Are we foolishly participating and not setting ourselves apart from the world? Okay, taking that question, that's a good question. There's another question similar to it, and, I, and the nuance is sufficient enough that I want to read it to you. It's question seven. The origin of Christmas is pagan. Over the years, it's become the day Christians celebrate the birth of Jesus. We know he wasn't born in December, yet we still celebrate it. Why? And when was he more likely born? All right. Those are good questions. I think that one's fun and spiritual. Um, Back to the first question. They listed three verses. They really came with their A game on this question. So I just, I need to acknowledge those verses. We're going to read them. They said, do they apply? Deuteronomy 12.4 reads, you shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. Well, reading that in context uh, provides, it illuminates a little bit more on probably what the poser of the question meant. Uh, It's referring in Deuteronomy 12 to people that worshiped trees that represented gods. Um, and worshiped other items. And then it lands on 12 verse 4 that says, don't worship the Lord your God with such things. Okay. Um, and then Colossians 2, 8, they asked if that applies. It says, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Um, Colossians 2, 8 could apply, I suppose, if you feel that the tradition of Christmas uh, is pulling you away from Christ. If you feel that the tradition of Christmas is pulling you away from Christ, it is wrong for you to celebrate it. Romans 12, verse 1 through 2, they reference that, if it applies. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I personally don't read Christmas into that verse at all. Unless you think, or you're suggesting that celebrating Christmas is being conformed to the pattern of the world, you might could apply that verse, I suppose. Um... But let's just define something really quick. Both of these questions said a a pagan holiday. And we need to make sure we know what pagan actually means. Uh, Pagan is P-A-G-A-N. And it means not Christian. Like not having Christian roots. In other words, pagan means it's rooted in or it's not rooted in and sustained by a religious framework. That's all that pagan means. Pagan doesn't mean it's demonic. There's a big difference. Okay? Pagan just means it wasn't born of God, born of the church. It's unchurched. So can we use it? There are two schools of thought, and I don't have enough time to go into it all, really, but it started back in, oh, good grief, the fourth century, where 
the church was looked at in one of two ways. One was you have the sacred city of God, the church, and then the secular city of the world. And those two don't intermingle at all. Okay, that was one view of church. And then the other view of church was more of this, for lack of a better word, fluid redemption. That there were things in the world that God could redeem and use for his glory, even though it wasn't really birthed in or from the church. Does that make sense? And you can even see religious organizations that kind of camp out in one or the other. I mean, they'll just believe that God redeems anything and everything and God can use it on this side. And then this side is like, no, if it's rated PG-13, we can't go. Or rated PG, we can't go. Like, there's very much a distinction. So I'm not here to tell you if either is good or bad. I'm just kind of helping you get a framework so that you can make your own decision on Christmas, okay? But when we talk about pagan culture, you should be aware that we do a lot of things that were rooted in pagan culture. I've written down eight things. Calling the days of the week by their current names is pagan. Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, that's pagan. Calling months by their current names, January, February, March, April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, December, that's pagan. Um, celebrating birthdays, pagan. I know you don't want to give up that. <laughs> Wearing wedding rings, pagan. Covering your mouth when you yawn, pagan. True. They actually believe that when you would yawn, part of your life source would leave your body, so they would cover the gate to keep life in their body. I cover the gate because I don't want you looking down my throat. And I don't know how my breath is today. Um, another pagan thing is wearing jewelry. Some of you looking fine and pagan today. Yeah. Um, wearing makeup is pagan. God, well, all right. I, and then my favorite that I still adhere to, um, I believe it's totally keeping cats as pets is pagan. Keeping cats as pets is pagan. Amen. Let's pray. That's the truth. It's pagan. So we do a lot of things that are have pagan origins, all right, but religious people, and those who ask the question, I'm not at all suggesting you have a religious spirit. I'm not. It's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. I'm very glad that you asked it. But be careful who you get input from because sometimes people get really religious on outward things so that they feel holy about themselves rather than do the hard work of the inner issues like dealing with pride, arrogance, anger, gossip. We're going to make everybody else look like sinners because you're, you're participating in pagan stuff while... Inside, we are rotting away with antichrist stuff. So pagan, just so that you know, pagan does not mean that it is anti-Christian. It doesn't mean that it's incompatible with Christianity. It just means it's unsaved. It's an unsaved attribute of society, okay? Now, not all pagan things should be adopted into the church or in the life of a believer. All right? 
pornography is pagan. I'm not suggesting that if it's pagan, it's good. I'm only saying that just because it's pagan doesn't intrinsically make it bad. All right? Are we there? Are you with me? Now, on, on a matter of semantics, just because I'm a nerd and my wife says I focus too much on details, I do need to call into question or kind of do, pull a little bit of pushback from both of these questions. Question number one said, why do we celebrate pagan holidays like Christmas and Easter? And then question number two was, the origin of Christmas is pagan. And I'm going to push back because I do not believe that the origin of Christmas or Easter is pagan. It's not true, actually. There are elements that are pagan in the traditions that we celebrate, but the birth of Christmas and the birth of Easter, I like to call it Resurrection Sunday, the birth of it is not pagan. It's only adopted some pagan elements. It's just semantics, and my wife is like, oh, please, you're straining a gnat. But it's important to differentiate the difference. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes my wife thinks I make too big of a big deal about like precise words, right? Okay, that's all I'm saying. But this is important for us to make a big deal about because it changes the perspective. If you think that Christmas was born of pagan roots, that's different than saying Christmas was born of Christianity in an effort to honor God And oh, by the way, it brought in some pagan things like a Christmas tree and mistletoe and holly and a yuletide log. Like, those things are all pagan. But the pagans didn't start Christmas. Now, I'll explain what I mean. Many of the Christmas traditions that we celebrate today are descended from pagan traditions like exchanging gifts, that's pagan too. But if you don't want your gifts, give them to me. The, the church, actually, the early church decided to celebrate the birth of Christ, to celebrate Christmas at the same time as the winter solstice. The winter solstice is December 22nd, if I'm not mistaken. And that's the darkest day of the year. And from that point forward, more and more light starts to come. In the pagan or unchurched culture of the day, when Christmas was about to be started, December 22nd and on, they called, this is the time of hope. They said, the light has come. And it was looking forward to the fertility of the ground as the seasons were about to change. They had just gone through a long, hard winter. Now, December 22nd, the winter solstice, shortest day of the year, darkest day of the year, and now it's getting brighter. The Christians said, we want to celebrate the birth of Jesus, and he is the light that has come. And we do now have days of hope. And our days are getting brighter. By the way, all these unchurched, a.k.a. pagan people, the biggest celebration that they have every year is December 22nd. If, if maybe we celebrate the birth of Jesus around that time, they're in the mood for celebration. They all had a week off from work for the celebration. Maybe we could get them to buy into the celebration and be a part with it. Now, keep in mind, the early church, most of them were not Jews. They were Gentiles, people that had previously been celebrating the pagan rituals and the pagan celebrations, the 
winter solstice on the 22nd. All of these people, they, they love their traditions. They love the, the candles on the trees. They, they love the idea of the mistletoe and all, all the things that brought with it. But when they stepped into Christ, they realized, I don't, I don't need to worship the God that's going to fail. I'm worshiping the one true God, but this celebration is kind of fun. This tradition is kind of fun. Let's adopt it into the Christmas tradition. The first celebrations of Christmas started in the fourth century, so around the year 400. And by the way, it didn't look very religious. It was filled with drunkenness and carnival-like behavior. Um, it wasn't until the 17th century when the Puritans came along. Thank, thank God for the Puritans that take the fun out of everything and that the Christmas celebration kind of changed. And in England, the government canceled Christmas in 1645 to remove the frivolous behavior, the crazy behavior. Um, in the 19th century, 1800s, the Americans began to embrace Christmas and it did not become a federal holiday in America until 1870. Now, here's the heart of the question these people are asking. There are pagan elements in Christmas. Should we participate in it? Here's my response. Now, let me just tell you, if you disagree with me, you're not wrong. And I'm not wrong either. You can still buy me lunch. Okay? You can disagree with me on this, and it doesn't matter. Here's what I believe. Titus 1.15 says, To the pure, all things are pure. If I'm stepping into Christmas with pure heart, my motivation is to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And I've got a tree in my living room. Come over to my house, you'll see more than one tree. That's not my doing. But to the pure, everything is pure. If I wanted to worship the the false god of the tree, that's a different conversation. That's called idolatry. But I don't, see, I just don't believe that you accidentally fall into partnership with demons. I just don't believe that. I believe that you willingly partner with demons. So it's, I, don't, I don't have to be so afraid that is, is this pagan and can I wear this earring and can I, can I go to the gym, which is also pagan, by the way, working out at the gym is, has pagan roots. Like, I don't have to worry about all that. We're free, church. To the pure, everything is pure. Peter had a vision in Acts chapter 10. I won't read it. But he went into a trance and he saw a large sheet come down from heaven, all kinds of four-hoofed animals and unclean animals. And he hears a voice from heaven say, Peter, eat. And Peter says, oh, no, Lord, I'm not going to eat that. I've never eaten anything unclean. And God said, don't call unclean what I've called clean. And some of us are trying so hard to keep unclean things away that God is like, well, I've redeemed those things. I've set you free from the curse of those things. In fact, we know in Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. We learned last week that Paul said, you can eat meat sacrificed to idols. In the temple, they would cut up the meat, they would sacrifice it to the idols, and then once they were done, they would take the slabs of the meat that were sacrificed to idols and take it to the market to make a profit. And Paul said, you you can eat that meat. They were afraid that if they would eat the meat, it was somehow condoning the ritual that happened in the temple to the false gods. And Paul's like, were you sitting at the table in the temple when they offered that meat to the gods? No, you weren't. So go buy it, it's half off. Eat the meat. To the pure, all things are pure. Do you see the freedom that we have in Christ? So, I believe compromise compromise with culture happens when our worship is pulled away from the one who truly deserves worship. So if you worship, sorry, if you celebrate Christmas and it lessens your worship of Jesus, then it's probably wrong for you. You should stop. But I believe there are bigger enemies to the church than Christmas trees and mistletoes and honey-baked hams and Yuletide logs, Christmas carols, and gift-giving. I believe that at the time of Christmas, the bigger threat to the church is commercialism. Commercialism, getting you so fearful that you're not getting the right gift for all the people who's buying you a gift, and you didn't know that they were buying you a gift, and so you got to have extra gifts just in case someone shows up to your house to give them a gift that you didn't know they were going to give you, and are they going to like the gift that I give them? And then Do I get the name brand Uggs or can I get the $50 Uggs? Uggs Uggs-ish. Do you know, commercialism meant we worship it. We forget why we're even celebrating Christmas because of commercialism, but there's even another more sneaky threat at Christmas time. The idol of family. Celebration of Christmas to actually make it holy means it's not about you and your family. And some of us get all of our plans centered all around getting everyone there at the dinner table, spending time with one another because family's number one, but family's actually not number one. Jesus is. And so if family draws your attention away from worship during Christmas, you've made family your idol rather than that. So last I'm not going to get to all these questions, but do you want to know when Jesus was most likely born? That was part of this question, so I'm just finishing it up, okay? (sighs) If Jesus wasn't born December 25th, when was he most likely born? Um, First of all, before I answer that, did everyone get one of these when you walked in? Let me open it. Okay, ushers, ushers. Let's get some chocolate up here, please. Stat. Also, while I'm opening this chocolate, I just want to let Jill Sterkle know that this is actually chocolate. Because there was one sermon illustration I gave out little soap bars. And in the dark, she thought it was chocolate, and she took a big old bite of the soap. In church, she was blowing bubbles for weeks. Miss Jill... Miss Joe, this is not soap. This is chocolate. 
but this is delicious. And I was looking for a reason to give these out to you. If you want one, raise your hand. If you didn't get one, raise your hand. Marielle, up here, anyone? Okay, a lot of our musicians. It's delicious. It's amazing. Can you eat, can you eat that and look at me while I tell this story? These were donated to us last week. We had, yeah, right on. Well, I didn't pay for them. They were donated by, yeah, doesn't matter, Kalahari. Um, we literally had a 15-minute conversation in the foyers and the hallways of this church wondering how many people we would offend giving away Halloween candy to church people. That was a real conversation. And at some point, I stopped it, and I was like, this is stupid. It's just chocolate. And so I said, let's save them and put them in the Christmas bags for the kids at Christmas. And I put them away, but then I thought about it, and I was like, well, ghosts at Christmas don't really make sense. Um, But I am this Sunday talking about people who read into things and pagan traditions and they allow that to influence their worship of the creator. And so I'm giving this today as just a reminder for all of us this Christmas season, just not read it into everything. Sometimes chocolate is just chocolate. The package may have a ghost. It may have a goblin. I don't actually know what glow-in-the-dark toy is in mine. I don't care. I'm just eating the chocolate. Sometimes chocolate is just chocolate. All right? So enjoy that. When was he born? There's lots of debate on when Jesus was born. Here's what I currently believe, and I reserve the right to change my opinion at any time, sometimes multiple times in a day. Because we don't really know when Jesus was born, but here's, I have believed for years that Jesus was born on September 11th. And I won't go into why I believe that, but I've now changed my mind. I believe he was conceived on September 11th. Okay? I believe Jesus, the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. He was conceived on September 11th in the year 3 BC. Okay? September 11th, 3 BC was the Feast of Trumpets. And I believe that that holiday was a foreshadowing. The trumpets was a a foreshadowing of something new that had come to the earth. Okay, so I believe he was conceived on September 11th. I believe that he was actually born through the womb, like entered the world. He made his grand entrance physically. He, He became a person September 11th. The Bible lets us know that at conception, the person is a person. All right. So September 11th was the day that the clock started, but he made his physical grand entrance. He he came through the womb, in my opinion, on June 7th, June 8th. Why do I believe that? Well, take September 11th, add nine months, takes us to uh, June 7th, June 8th, one of those days. And that also, listen, that's 2 B.C., in 2 BC, June 7th, June 8th, was also Pentecost. Ooh, I believe that Holy Spirit was given on Pentecost. I believe that Jesus was given on Pentecost. We go five months later, actually December 25th of 2 BC, is that we, we know from the stars, there's a program, computer program called Stellarium, and you can look 
hundred centuries out in front, centuries out and back. And you can see actually what the stars were doing at all of this time. And that's why I believe these dates currently. And I'll send you to a link. You can watch a, a video on this if you want. Um, but on December 25th was the day that Jupiter retrograded and it sat over Bethlehem. And that would have been the time when the Magi saw where to go to deliver gifts. So this Christmas, December 25th, rather than be so caught up and concerned about when was Jesus born, was it this day or not, just know that most likely on that morning, the Magi was seeing the star that was leading them to bring the gifts to Messiah. So I think that's a beautiful, a beautiful connection. If you want to look that up, I recommend you go watch the documentary on Bethlehemstar.com. Bethlehemstar.com. Please stand your feet. I've really enjoyed this series. Thank you for asking so many great questions. There's so many questions I didn't get to that I wanted to. They were slated to be talked about. I just ran out of time. But I think we'll do this series again next year. So be thinking of your questions that you want us to tackle. God is good. Amen. Father, we come before you today. I thank you so much for who you are and what you're doing in our hearts and in our life. God, I thank you that in all the questions that we ask, the truth is the answer is always found in you. Every question that we have, every longing that we have, every void that we experience always finds its completion in you. So God, I ask that you would, God, settle our hearts. For those of us that have been wrestling with questions and wondering where you are in a situation and why you've not shown up yet and why things aren't going the way that we think that it should. God, I ask that there would just be a settling in our spirit, a trusting in you. And for those in the room that don't yet know Jesus as their personal savior, maybe you're watching online today from Starbucks or your living room or just down the road, maybe across the street or across the world. And maybe you're not even watching this on today's date. You're watching this six months from now, but you just sense this drawing, this longing to know Jesus as your personal savior. In this moment, I want you just to take a moment to place your hand on your heart. In fact, if that's you in the room right now or watching live, if you're ready to say yes to Jesus, will you just place your hand over your heart? We're going to say a prayer to, together. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Church, can we just, to support them, also place our hand over our heart today? There's no formula to the prayer, but let's just repeat from a sincere and honest position today. Say, Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came to take away the sins of the world. He died on the cross for me. He was placed in a grave and rose on the third day. I believe, as the scripture says, from this moment forward, my life will never be the same. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I saw three decisions for Jesus in the room. Can we celebrate? Awesome.
If you said yes to Jesus, please scan the QR code. We would love to walk this journey with you, or you can catch the QR code at the information desk. Church, thank you so much for being here today. Don't forget, today after service, we are cutting paper. We've got 8,000 more of these rings to make, chains. So go grab lunch, an hour, hour and a half. Make your way back if you're able to help us. If you've got Connect Group, catch up with us after. We'll be here till 6 p.m. We love you guys. God bless you. See you next week.